So this morning, the title of my sermon is Passionate or Lukewarm. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that one of our teenagers in this church, Amanda Way, who was there in the first service, had approached me and asked if I could deliver a sermon on a lukewarm Christian because she wanted to hear about lukewarmness. And uh, here it is. Here it is. It's always a little bit more challenging when the topic isn't generated by yourself. But one of the deacons told me that in the back you see those boxes. We've been using both boxes for the offering because we don't collect it because of COVID. But now they want to change one of the boxes to just the offering. And the other box will now read sermon suggestions. (laughs) And Bob will review those and deliver those. (laughs) (laughs) My text this morning is the book of the Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Should be behind me in display in the New King James, is it? Okay. And it's, you know, I read Revelation 3, verse 15, which actually speaks of lukewarm. But I chose chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 of the book of the Revelation because it seems to better describe the reason for it. So pray with me as I seek the anointing of God's on these my words, but his thoughts. And I use Psalm 1914. So dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen? (coughs) Amen. You know, there is an old saying that says, the good is ever the enemy of the best. There is nowhere where that is truer than in the kingdom of God, in the lives of Christians, and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. It's one of the devil's oldest schemes. And scripture tells us that we are not to be unaware of the schemes, that wherever God is present at work, be certain that Satan is not that far away. Scripture also tells us that he is our enemy, and he who, like a roaring lion, is seeking whom he might devour. And any cursory study of the New Testament will show that the devil employs many tactics as he tries to thwart the work of God. And whenever he can, he, he tries to introduce false doctrine into the church. And when this does not work, he introduces chisms and divisions, knowing that a house divided against itself will not stand. With a nasty tool chest, full of things like gossip and jealousy and suspicion and pride, he causes God's people to take their eyes off of Jesus and his commandments and causes them instead to focus on earthly things which have no eternal value. And then when God's people refuse to allow sin in their midst, Satan often brings persecution and difficulties against the church, all in an effort to discourage and to dishearten God's people. And when these tactics are not completely successful, there is another tool that he uses to stop the progress of a particular church or congregation. It is perhaps the most insidious tool because it is hidden behind the facade of success. When he cannot deceive us, divide us, or daunt us, 
what he will often do is divert us. The fervor we once had for Jesus is replaced with an acceptance of things as they are. Satan wants us to become satisfied with where we are, with what we are doing, and with what we have accomplished. That instead of maintaining a red-hot passion for Christ and his kingdom, we lose our zeal for Christ and his kingdom, replacing a once-consuming internal passion with a complacency that is content with the religious status quo. And of all the endeavors of humanity, there's only one which carries an absolute promise of God's unending blessing, and that is the expansion of the kingdom of God. When we share our faith and attempt to make disciples for Christ, he has promised to bless our efforts to multiply them and to give us success. But why then? Have some 80% of churches in our country either reached a plateau or are in decline? You know, our text this morning paints a picture of a church, a picture which in many ways shows us why so many other churches in this country are in decline. A picture not only of a church, but of individual, individuals who somewhere along the line allowed the good to replace the best in their spiritual lives. And we must be vigilant. We must be on guard corporately and individually against losing our passion. And we must guard against becoming what the church of Ephesus had become. That is why our text has been recorded in God's word. It is a prophetic word. It is a preventative word. It is a prescriptive word. God does not want us to be like Ephesus. And to this end, it is that I speak to you this morning. So first in your outline, consider that Christ commends them. You know, the city of Ephesus was a mighty and majestic city. It was the center of tourism and trade. Four major trade routes went through the city, making it somewhat cosmopolitan in the ancient world. It was a wealthy city, and yet a very pagan city, as it was the home to the largest temple in the ancient world, the pagan temple of Artemis. Acts 20 gives us a background on this church. We it tells us that Paul had preached to them for three years. We also have the book of Ephesians. It helps us to understand the profound degree to which they had been taught the truth. They understood who they were in Christ, how to walk with Christ, how to engage in spiritual warfare. Their problem was not a failure to understand good doctrine. Their problem was that they lacked perseverance. The Ephesian church existed during one of the most difficult periods of time in Christian history, beginning in 54 AD. With the emperor Nehru, there was a widespread persecution of Christians. The Ephesian church refused to bow to Caesar, and they stood firm in the midst of persecution. So here in verses 1, 2, and 3, Christ commends them. The church at Ephesus was not idle. And on the contrary, they were very busy working for the Lord. Their calendar was full. And not only were they they busy for the Lord, they took a strong stand against heresy. They were well grounded in the word, no doubt. 
Their pastor was an expository preacher giving them clear application points to every sermon. They withstood persecution and not fainted. Outwardly, everything looked great. And for these good things, Christ commends them. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. He knows all that we do. But there is a powerful insight to be learned here. Mere works are not enough to please the Lord more than outward compliance. What Jesus wants is a heart, hearts that are changed. That is why after commending them in verses 2 and 3, he counsels them in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so second in your outline, consider that Christ counsels them. He counsels them to return to their first love, to keep Jesus first in their hearts. They have started out strong over time, but then things begin to change. A generation had come and gone since Paul had preached to them. And while they had remained faithful to the word of God and had endured hardship, the likes of which most of us wouldn't even imagine, something was lacking. They had lost their passion, the fervor for Christ, the passionate love that had motivated them, that had burned within their hearts, had given way to mechanical orthodoxy, a a ritualistic form of service that lacked enthusiasm and zeal. What happens when we leave our first love? What happens when the passion we once had for Christ is replaced by legalism or by self-righteousness? or by a mechanical form of Christianity that contains all the externals but lacks the passion that once stirred in our hearts and moved us to love Christ. And now we focus in the form of substance of our faith. We become infatuated with knowledge instead of holiness. Personal holiness is no longer our quest. We are convinced that knowledge, Bible studies, is what makes us holy. And thus knowledge, something we can attain for ourselves, replaces God's presence and his lordship in our life. Something we cannot do for ourselves. What we know becomes more important than what we are. You know, we become comfortable with the holy instead of being in awe of it. The sense of awe that Isaiah had when he came into the presence of God is gone from us. And we become like the sons of Samuel who had lost the respect for the holiness of God. We lose our evangelistic zeal and we see the world as our enemy instead of our mission field. And that causes us to become more concerned with the comfort of the saints than with the salvation of the lost. This is what happens when This is what causes churches to become inwardly directed instead of outwardly directed. So when a church grows lukewarm, they are more concerned with maintaining their tradition than they are with seeing salvations and baptisms. They become insensitive to the Holy Spirit. They become dulled to the small besetting sins that distract them. This manifests itself in the fellowship. They're satisfied to live at odds with other Christians, And thus it brings division and discord in the church. 
You know, when we are passionately in love with Jesus, we're sensitive to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And when we become lukewarm, we lose that sensitivity. Gossip, pride, jealousy, bitterness, attitudes of spiritual one man's upship, and a host of other godly things are allowed to dwell within us. And because we are insensitive to these things, we are no longer aware that they displease God. We become content with what is, what we are, instead of being driven to become more and more like Christ. The passion for becoming like Christ is diminished. Instead of comparing ourselves to Jesus, we begin to compare ourselves against one another, always reasoning to ourselves that as long as we are better than so-and-so, we're okay. This attitude leads to self-righteousness. You know, to allow other things to sit on the throne of our lives and to relegate Christ to a lesser place of importance. Now, mind you, we still give lip service to Christ as Lord, but in our hearts, other things reign. It may be success, it may be power, pride, prestige, or pleasure, but something else sits on the thrones of our lives. You know, we become something to someone else other than Christ. We love something or someone else. And this is the bottom line. We become dispassionate and cool in our relationship with Christ. What kind of relationship do you think that Stephen had with Jesus, the first martyr to the faith? Do you think it was a formal, ritualistic relationship? Just going through the motions but lacking fervor and zeal? That's not the kind of relationship that causes someone to die for Jesus. What kind of relationship do you think Paul had with Jesus? When he was beaten up and left for dead. When he was in prison and he knew he would be executed. Compare that with the kind of relationship that many Christians have with Jesus today. They find little time or no time for him on a daily basis. So instead of being concerned about the things that concern him, they're more concerned about themselves and their personal desires. Unwilling to give all that they are or all that they have to Jesus, they are unwilling to be inconvenienced by Jesus. They do not tithe because that might deny them some of the material things that make their life more comfortable. They do not witness for that may cause others to think that they are fanatical. They are more willing to give their time, energy, and money to a sporting event or some other form of entertainment than they are to the things of God. Life for them is about self-advancement, not about the kingdom of God. And then they wonder why they have no spiritual power. They wonder why they have not sensed the presence of God in their life for a mighty long time. They're only willing to give as much of themselves and to the substance to Christ as they absolutely have to in order to convince themselves that they are a good Christian. Well, listen, Christ never asked for a part of your life. He asked for all of it. 
He never asked for a place in your hearts. He asked for absolute rule and reign in your hearts. He never asked to be one of many passions in your heart. He asked to be the one consuming passion of your lives. You know, it's dangerous to go through the motions of Christianity without a passionate love for Christ. It sets the wrong example for new Christians, causing them to have to backslide just to fellowship with the body. It teaches our children a distorted lesson on what it means to be a Christian. This lukewarmness has a tendency to become self-perpetuating. It causes us to become content with less than God's best, denying us the riches of life that we have in store in Christ. You know, what Jesus wants is he wants us to love him like he loves us. And I think he demonstrated that love for us on the cross. He suffered and he died for us, bearing our sins on Calvary's cross. And not because he was forced to, but because of his love for us and his desire to bring us into the fold with the Father. I think we also can realize that Jesus has never lost his passion for us. He loves us, and that love burns white hot. His desire is to be in relationship with us, and it is as strong today as it was when he first chose and called us. It is as passionate today as it was when he hung there on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus loves us, and he wants us to return that love. You know, we, the church, are his bride. He loves us like a husband loves the wife of his youth. And how sad it is when that love is unrequited, when it is not returned. And today Jesus is saying, remember from where you have fallen. Remember to your first deeds and return and the life in which you were called in Christ Jesus. But if we refuse to heed his counsel, if we decide to disregard what Christ has told us, there are consequences. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And so third, in your outline, consider that Christ cautions them. If they don't repent, if they don't return to their first love, he will remove the fire of his spirit from their midst. Oh, you will still have your buildings. You will still have your programs, your busy schedules and all the extras. And you may still be able to attract new people with pretty facilities and clever how-to sermons. But the power of God will be missing God will take his hand off of the church and leave us to go through the motions. And what a tragic picture that would be that is painted for us. A group of people going through the motions of Christianity without the living God in their midst. Could there be anything more empty or more sad? What happened to the church at Ephesus? Today, the ruins of that ancient city lie under the murk and mire of a swamp. The church at Ephesus died. 
and the city that surrounded it died as well. Now look at verse 7 of our text, which states, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The truth of the matter is that a church is made up of individuals. The passion of the church will never be greater than the collective passion of her members. If we are on fire for Christ, that passion will be reflected in our church. If we grow lukewarm in our love for Jesus, that lukewarmness will be evident in our fellowship. That is why this message, although addressed to the church as a whole, comes down to the individual. Here in verse 7 again, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is where this message speaks to us, each of us, as individuals. And so forth, the outline, in conclusion, what is God saying to you this morning? You know, I believe he's asking each of us to do the same thing that he asked of the church at Ephesus. He's asking us to remember where we once were. He's counseling us to go back to the passion that we once had for Jesus. Go back to that moment when you first met Jesus. Remember the love that you felt, the stirring in your heart, the adoration that you had for the Savior. Do you remember how grateful you were for the forgiveness of sins? Do you remember how at that moment nothing else mattered except Jesus? And this morning, God wants you and me to to go back and remember that moment in time. And having that in our memory, he wants us to return. He wants us to go back to him, to go back to our first love, to the place and time in our lives where he was everything to us. That's what he wants from us this morning. Amen? Now, a good way to close this service is by approaching the Lord's table. So let's share communion. In the back of your uh, the chairs in front of you, you'll notice there's a little cup. Take the top off that cup and expose the bread immediately. Amen? So listen. The first acceptable sacrifice to God after the fall was Abel's lamb. One lamb for one person. Later came the Passover, one lamb for one family. Then came the Day of Atonement, one lamb for one nation. And finally, Good Friday, one lamb for the whole world. Scripture tells us the same night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. So take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Drink. Yes, we proclaim his sacrifice on the cross. We acknowledge his death for our sins. But in light of today's sermon, we should also proclaim the love that he showed for us in the sacrifice. We should note that his love, his passion, has never lessened or diminished in intensity. He's passionate, not lukewarm. So he's asking us to continue in our passion or to go back to the passion that we may have had and not show lukewarmness in our love for him. Of course, I'm saddened to report that there are, perhaps here, some who have never had the passion for Jesus. And to you I plead, reach out in faith for salvation. Amen? I will see all of you here next week. Those of you online, I'll see more of you next week. We'll be thrilled to have you worshiping together with us. Amen.